Well, good morning, everyone. If you would, please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would renew our minds, that we would grasp your great love for us, and that we would delight in Christ all the more. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to believe this morning. And would you work in your people for our good and for your glory. And as in your son, Jesus' name, amen. One of the uh, worst weeks of my life occurred when I was 16 years old. I had begun attending church the past several months out of guilt and a recognition that there was something seriously messed up with my heart. I'd encountered the message of Jesus before, um, that he had died on the cross for my sins, but God began to help me to see that more clearly and, and with it, my great need. Well, unfortunately, one day, I'm talking with a member of that church who um, begins speaking with me about the Lord's Supper, and he, he warns me about, you know, um, we have to be careful to, to partake of the cup um, in an unworthy manner. And he goes on to share his thoughts that, hey, if an unbeliever were to ever take the Lord's Supper, they cannot be saved. Now, unbeknownst to him, I was very confident that I had taken the Lord's Supper numerous times while unconverted. So I think I, which by the way, Bible in no way teaches that, so I just want to make that clear. Um, but I think I did what anybody else in my situation would have, and I started, um, I immediately started telling God things like, hey, God, we're, we're good, right? You know that I was a believer all along, um, and then when I realized that I could not lie to the Lord Almighty, I, I switched tactics and just began to to beg and plead that God would not send me to hell. Um, I don't remember much of that week, but I know it went something like, wake up, I'm going to hell. Um, throughout the day, asking God to forgive me, and then at night before I go to bed thinking, wow, I cannot be forgiven. That was my week. Um, and... I went to church that next Sunday really scared and, and cautiously asked my pastor at the time, um, didn't tell him why, but just asked, hey, what would happen if an unbeliever took the Lord's Supper? Could, could, could he or she be saved? And my pastor's word at that time was a resounding yes. And I cannot begin to tell you the relief that I experienced in that moment after spending an entire week asking the question, can I be saved, and answering no in each and every instance, and learning that I can be saved. Now, I think there's a sense in which we all begin our relationship with God um, from a place of mourning of our sin and fear of his wrath. But if that is all the gospel is to us, a proverbial get out of hell free card, I believe we are grossly uninformed. Paul David Tripp 
describes our problem in this way. So often we treat the gospel like an airline runway, necessary for our liftoff, conversion, and descent, death. But the Bible looks at it as jet fuel. The gospel permits the liftoff, sustains us through our long and difficult flight, and brings us safely home. And, and that's the main point this morning. The, the gospel, the good news, should be our hope, not only the day of our salvation, but each and every day of this earthly life with all of its ups and downs and into eternity. And we are going to try to flesh that out a little bit this morning by looking at the gospel's effect on our past, present, and future. And I think uh, last week, Pastor Justin said something um, like, hey, I'm going to attempt to preach on Romans 8.28. That's kind of where I'm at with this. Um, this is probably a whole sermon series in and of itself, but I hope, if nothing else, it, it whets your appetite for further study in days to come. So before we get into how the gospel affects our past, present, and future, we should probably define terms, right? Like, what, what is the gospel? Well, the most concise summary of it is actually found in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. And the Apostle Paul puts it this way, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So what's the gospel? The gospel is that Christ died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day. And there are a few things implied there. Um, ultimately, it is God to whom, we are to whom we are accountable. Our problem is that we have rebelled against God, and God's solution to humanity's sin is the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, other thing, sin, what, that word gets tossed around a lot. If you're, not, if you're new to, to this church, you may not be sure what that means. It's actually an archery term, and it, it means to miss the mark. Now, you might hear that and say, oh, okay, I'm, I'm tracking with you. Um, no one's perfect, Corey, myself included. However, the Bible indicates sin is not simply a failure to hit a specific target. Instead, it gives the idea that I see the target right in front of me, and I stubbornly turn my back and shoot in the opposite direction. Elsewhere, the Bible describes sin as lawlessness. It is rebellion against the law of God. And the reason why is you see the Bible is very clear that God is both our creator and our king. And God's commands are not just guidelines for how to live the good life. They are, in fact, the law of the land. Therefore, sin is the highest form of treason that we as human beings can commit, fully deserving death and an eternity of separation, separation from God. Now, if you hear that and think, wow, that is a little harsh, that's a little extra, uh, David Platt helps us out by sharing the story of his friend Azim, who was seeking to share a gospel with a taxi dri driver in a foreign country. Now, this taxi dr driver believed that, hey, I'm going to pay for my sins for a little while um, in hell, sure, but then eventually I'm going to work off that debt and get to heaven. After all, I, I haven't done too many bad things. So Azim uh, asked him, hey, if I slapped you in the face, what would you do to me? Driver replied, well, I'd, I'd throw you out of my cab. 
Azim continued, if I went up to a random guy on the street and slapped him in the face, what would he do? Oh, he would probably call his friends and they would beat you up, of course. Okay, okay. Well, what if I, what if I slapped a police officer? Listen, you slap a police officer here, you're gonna be beat up for sure, and you're going to jail. And so finally Azim asked, well, what happens if I were to slap the king of this country? You would die. You know what, a, you know what Azim was trying to get this taxi driver to see that oftentimes we fail to see? Is the penalty for sin is determined by the magnitude of the one who is sinned against. So if you sin against an infinitely holy and eternal God, you are infinitely guilty and worthy of eternal punishment. And the reason we need to understand these concepts is because until we grasp how terrible our situation is, we will never see Christ for how beautiful and wonderful he is. Timothy Keller puts it this way, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Now you might hear all this and think, but you have no idea what I've done. And you're right, I don't know, but if you would like to see how the gospel changes us at the moment of our conversion and alters our relationship with our past sins, then probably no better example is offered in scripture than that of the Apostle Paul. And now we're going to get into our first point, the, the gospel's effect on our past. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Apostle Paul, I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that he is probably one of the most influential people that have ever lived. When we first encounter him, though, he's going by the name Saul, and he's actually watching the coats of individuals that are putting Stephen to death. And why are these guys putting Stephen to death? What crime could he have committed? Well, he's, he's trying to tell people that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And so there's Saul in the background just cheering them on as they murder Stephen for the gospel. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul describes his upbringing in this way. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You see, the, the Pharisees were a very powerful and strict religious sect within Judaism, and they, they prided themselves on knowing God's word and adhering to all these other traditions that were laid down by their forefathers to keep them from sinning. Um, and if if you're familiar with the New Testament, you'll also know they were the key players in organizing Jesus' crucifixion. So it's not too surprising to read in Acts 8.3, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, this word ravaging carries with it the idea of an animal eating its prey while it's still alive. So Paul is a very self-righteous, committed, and violent man. But then he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus while he's actually en route to, to find other believers whom he hopes to imprison or force to recant. And his life is radically changed. He goes on to 
um, instead of being the church's greatest opponent, he goes on to be its greatest missionary and an apostle writing more books of the New Testament than anyone else. And Paul gives a brief autobiography and talks of his salvation in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You'll notice Paul doesn't pull any punches regarding who he was and what he has done. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. I was ignorant and unbelieving. And this isn't the only time, mind you, that Paul has brought up his personal history and and talked about his salvation. But you know what's absent on each and every occasion? Paul never seems to say... I should have known better. Or if only I could go back and do things differently. And you know why he doesn't seem to go there? Because he regularly reminds himself of the reality that his salvation has never been about what he has done. I received mercy. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Paul is off our maps here. Paul did not wallow in the past and live in guilt, but he didn't just sweep his past under the rug and forget about it. Instead, Paul's apparent habit of regularly reminding himself of how morally bankrupt and dead he was in his sins allowed him to take greater delight in the forgiveness that God had provided in Jesus' death and resurrection. So let me ask you, where do you go when you're reminded of your past? Do you stoke the fire of your pride and say, I'll do better? Or do you stoke the fire of your worship and say, thank God Jesus has forgiven me for all my sin? But I don't mean to imply here that Jesus only forgives us for our past um, prior to, to trusting in him. But he is still our rescuer even today. And I think that's what Paul is getting at when he highlights. You'll notice in 1 Timothy, Paul didn't say, I was the foremost of sinners. What does he say? I am the foremost of sinners. And even though Paul seems to have great assurance that if he were to die, he would be safe in Christ, um, 
he recognizes that we as God's people live in what's been called the already and not yet. Yes, we are already forgiven. Yes, we are already adopted, regenerated, and saved from the penalty of our sin. But while sin's power is broken, and I have been freed from my bondage to it, still it remains. So how do we fight against this ever-present evil that still looks lurks in our hearts? Or to put it another way, how does the gospel connect with our day-to-day lives? Well, that's what we're going to look at next, the gospel's effect on our present. Scripture teaches that the gospel may be best viewed as a hub in a wheel from which various spokes go forth in our lives, or at least could if we take the time to consider us consider the numerous aspects of this good news. And probably the best example of this is Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. Um, So starting in verse 11, but when Cephas, by the way, that's another name for Peter, the apostle Peter, came to Antioch, this is Paul talking, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, a little background on the circumcision party. This was a group of Jewish false teachers who, while coming from James, uh, by no means held to James's teaching. They were going around saying, hey, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. And it appears encouraged their converts beyond that to practice other Old Testament rules and regulations, basically to become Jewish. And and this isn't too surprising because for centuries, there had been a rift between Jews and Gentiles. And uh, apparently, Peter likewise struggled with his her- making too much of his heritage, because if you are familiar with the book of Acts, God actually had to intervene and give Peter a special vision. Um, and from receiving that vision regarding the Gentiles, he goes witnesses to Cornelius, a Gentile, and Cornelius, as well as his household, are saved. And, and you know what the apostle Peter's response is? He and everybody with him are amazed, Right. But it does appear like he's learned from that experience, he, he, and, and he's seeking to cheat, treat the Gentiles differently. Um, he was in the habit of eating with them, which, by the way, having a meal with somebody at that time was a much bigger social gesture than it is today. It signified fellowship, and not only that, it was a really big deal for a Jew because Gentiles had a habit of eating things that were unclean and taboo for the Jewish committed. Community. So for the Apostle Peter to start eating with the Gentiles signified a, a very big step. But despite what Peter knows, he starts to separate himself from the Gentiles. And because of his position of authority in the church, others are led astray from, um, by his conduct. And so the Apostle Paul continues, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus 
in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. What Paul does here is, is very profound because he doesn't handle Peter's sin like we typically handle one another's sin. He doesn't go up to Peter and say, hey, Peter, stop being racist or throw out a verse and just leave it at that. Instead, Paul demonstrates to Peter how his sin is not in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter, we know our former way of life did not in any way cause us to be looked upon in favor in the sight of a holy and righteous God. It is only through the blood of Jesus that we stand innocent. And the only thing these Gentile sinners need to do is the same thing that we Jewish sinners have done, and that is believe in Christ Jesus. Talk about a remedy to racism. But you know why this is concerning for us this morning? Because for the majority of here, if I had handed you out a, a gospel quiz prior to the sermon, I'm guessing you would have had no problem writing it down. You, have, you may have even been expecting me to bring up 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. But this text shows us that we can know the gospel, but it does not have our heart. I'll say that again. We can know the gospel, but it does not have our heart. Let's do one more. Um, anxiety. Uh, a topic that I'm, I feel like I'm a little bit of an expert on, but probably not for the reason you might think. I, I remember about eight years ago, for a period of a year or if not more, I was regularly talking to Alicia uh, about my fears that I would die any moment. And because of that, I was becoming a regular at the doctor's office um, for no reason whatsoever, apparently, because one day, eventually, the doctor said, hey, Corey, the next time you think something is wrong, I'd like you to take this instead of coming here. Um, but my worries were never limited to just my physical health. I constantly felt afraid of anything and everything. And you want to know how my conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel? Can I, can I share it with you? You see, prior to this season of anxiety beginning, Alicia and I had suffered our first miscarriage. And then a host of other pursuits did not turn out as anticipated, blew up in my face. And even though I would have never said something so blasphemous, you know what my practical theology was at this point? God, you got it wrong. I can't trust you. I'm not sure you are in control. And my life is my responsibility. But I learned during that time that I am a very poor master of my fate and captain of my soul. And by God's grace, I saw the lies that were feeling, filling my heart. And you know what I did? I didn't seek to continue to listen to my heart, but to speak truth to it. And probably one of the most comforting truths being that because of Christ, not what I've done, but because of Christ, God is my Father. He is infinitely wise, loving, and in control of all things. And even though things come into my life that are by no means good, I can trust that he is moving all things together for good. And you may ask, what, what could possibly make you think that, Corey? Well, you know what the worst day in all human history was? Mankind 
ridiculing, torturing, and putting to death our Savior and Lord, Jesus. But you know what the best day in all human history was? Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. So where are you today? Have you thought about how the gospel connects with your depression? How the gospel connects with your relationship with your spouse or children? How it connects with your work, anger, or the poor? May it be that we as God's people live and step with the truth of the gospel. And our final point this morning, the gospel's effect on our future. We spent most of last year in the book of Revelation, um, which, if you're not familiar with that book, it, well, it discusses a lot of things, but it ends with giving us insight into the fact that because of Christ, we will enjoy God's presence forever in a way that is altogether different from our lives as we know them today. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy find themselves in Aslan's country, which is intended to be a picture of heaven. And C.S. Lewis um, writes this, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all stories, and we, can, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I don't know about you, but I am far too caught up in the cover and title page of my existence. Whereas the Bible teaches that the fact that this present creation is a temporary one, and that our life in the new creation will last for all eternity should lead us to live godly lives and to live in such a way as to store up treasures in heaven. In fact, Jesus actually tells his people to do that. Don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves don't break in in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I remember a, a dear older saint who served as a missionary in Tennessee visiting me while I was at, um, in college in Indiana and taking me out to lunch. And afterwards, when she dropped me off at school, knowing that I was a broke college student, she says, here, 
and hands me a $20 bill. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with missionaries, but they don't make a whole lot. In fact, the ones I knew, they learned how to stretch every dollar for what it's worth. So I, um, I told her, hey, I, I can't accept this. And she gave me this hard look. I think I may have lost a couple years of my life and said, boy, don't you dare rob me of my blessing. I think, I think she, I think this wonderful lady understood well these verses. Or as um, Jim Elliott, a missionary in Ecuador who died at the hands of a native tribe he was seeking to share the gospel with, summed up, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Are you being foolish? focusing on earthly riches where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal? Or are you investing in riches unimaginable and unfading? Oh, may it be that we as God's people are not foolish. So I hope, um, I, I hope during our time together this morning, you've learned that in the words of John Piper, you, you never, 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 never outgrow your need for the gospel. But one crucial question you should be asking is how do I myself, right here, right now, how do I come to be included in that salvation? What makes this good news for me, not for someone else? Well, the Bible tells us this, to trust what Jesus has done on our behalf and turn away from our sins. Earlier, we saw that the circumcision party got, got this backwards. They operated on the principle that I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And I think a lot of people are, stay in that camp. But the gospel operates on this principle. I am accepted through Christ, therefore I obey. Totally different. So are you trusting in your righteousness or in Christ's righteousness? Romans 4, 5 says this, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And if you want an example of that, let, let me invite you one more time back to the Chronicles uh, of Narnia. Eustace Scrub is the cousin of Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy, and he gets to travel to Narnia um, and happens upon an island with a great treasure. And this treasure has been accumulated by a dragon that he watches die. And, and Eustace does what I think the majority of people would do. He starts thinking about, what can I do with all this great wealth? And in his joy, he, he puts on a golden bracelet, and he falls asleep on it with greedy and dragonish thoughts. To his horror, though, he wakes up and he realizes that he is no longer just thinking like a dragon, but he's actually become a dragon. And that bracelet that brought him so much joy a few moments ago is now cutting into his huge, grotesque dragon arm and causing him incredible pain. Thankfully, though, Eustace encounters the lion, Aslan, um, the creator of Narnia, who offers him a chance to be cleansed, provided he get rid of his dragon skin. And Eustace tries and tries, 
but despite how many layers he removes, still the dragon remains. And it's at this point that Eustace realizes the terrible truth. He had not become a dragon. He always was one. And finally, Aslan and Mercy informs Eustace, I will remove it for you. Eustace, speaking about this event, says, the pain was unbearable. He removed the skin all the way to my heart. But oh, the relief. Do you know that relief? We have been uh, going through a series regarding the promises of God, and Jesus offers us this wonderful promise of rest in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all who, are late, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we do not treat the gospel as we ought. I pray for myself and for all those here that we would see the many blessings that you have poured out to us in Christ, that we would be changed to be more and more like him. We thank you for what you have done in saving us from our sins, how you have not treated us, how we deserved and I pray that you would grow us in grace and on knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And as in your son, Jesus' name, I pray. Man, let's stand together.